Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. How you doing tonight, Kevin? I'm doing great. It's uh, Merry Christmas. It is Merry Christmas. Or it was Merry Christmas, and here's to hoping to a great new year. Yes. Yeah, so we, we uh, really wanted to do this podcast uh, literally the moment after we saw the first episode of season two of The Mandalorian. We wanted to start talking about it, but out of respect for everybody who, you know, likes to wait until a whole season comes out to binge watch or whatever, um, we decided to uh, not do any spoilers. So we, we kind of hinted a little bit at a couple of spoilers at a previous podcast. We told you guys not to listen if you weren't caught up on Mandalorian, but we're, we're going all in now. We are going to talk about Mandalorian season two. We uh, are so pumped to do so. We're probably going to overlook some stuff and need to come back. But, you know, to just try to keep our eyes on the prize and not get ahead of ourselves or gloss over anything that's too important, we're just going to focus on the first four episodes tonight. How do you feel about that, Kevin? Yeah, uh, I feel like that's probably the best way for us to have the best conversation about it. I got to say, uh, I was putting together the notes for this one, and it turns out the the first half of the season was really, really good. But the back half of the season was really, really, really good, and uh, and a lot of the best stuff happens in the back half. So we're we're sort of riding the you know we're on a roller coaster here, or we're like ratcheting up the up the hill um, on the chain, and there's good stuff happening, and we're looking around. But know that when we crest that hill, there's a there's an amazing ride coming after this. Yeah, no, I, I mean, really, we got eight solid episodes. Um, a lot of our predictions didn't really come true. Some of them came true, and it, it was. I would just say it's time well spent. So if for whatever reason you're listening to this podcast instead of watching every episode of Mandalorian season two and you're just going to go ahead and do it anyway, uh, just know that we are not doing it justice. It's a great show and you should watch this. Yeah. So let's get into it. Uh, it, it starts uh, with the first episode, chapter nine, The Marshal. And when does this take place? So this takes place pretty much immediately following uh, Chapter 8 at the end of Season 1. Uh, so at this point, you know, the uh, Mandalorian, he has um, been quested by the armorer to either bring Baby Yoda um, back to uh, his his home people or to sort of be his clan forever. Um, and so... You know, Mando's looking for Jedi to bring uh, Baby Yoda back to because that's that's all he really knows to do. And for some reason, he has decided that in order to find Jedi, he needs to find more Mandalorians because he believes that because the Mandalorians and the Jedi once fought, the Mandalorians who remained would know where to find Jedi. Right. And to a certain extent, I think that kind of tracks with the fact that... Um, in season one, when Din Djarin had questions or he needed help, um, there were flashbacks when he was a little boy about Mandalorians helping to save him and put him on his path, show him the way, if you will. Um, and then also he would always come back to the collective and, and try to, you know, kind of share in that familial bond. So I think that he feels that he's in over his head trying to find Baby Yoda's family and other Jedi that for him the best way to start is to be surrounded by other Mandalorians because that's kind of every time he's been out of luck he's found salvation with that. That's right. So he goes to uh, some unnamed planet and um, gets himself into what is essentially like a death match between two Gamorreans 
um, to ask this one-eyed dude where to find some more Mandalorians. And one-eyed dude reveals that he knows he, he keeps track of Mandalorians because he likes to kill them and sell their Beskar. Does not end well for that guy. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, One-Eyed Dude actually only has one eye. He's like a straight-up cyclops of some sort. He's not a uh, guy missing an eye. Um, but yeah, there, there's uh, we're again out in the Outer Rim. There's a lot of lawlessness. Clearly, um, the New Republic is not really very good at unifying all of the planets. And so the kind of crime that we got accustomed to... Uh, during the Clone Wars outside of, you know, kind of like Coruscant and stuff like that just continued on all through, you know, the whole rebellion and everything. So and it's not going away. So that kind of tracks with if we're trying to figure out like why the new order rises the way that they do. It's probably because nothing ever changed. Yeah, basically. And you know, there's a there's a, a line much, much later outside of Think This episode, but about order and freedom that we'll talk about uh, next week. Right, right. So anyway, um, he gets some information and it sends him to Tatooine, that, that old place. Yeah, and this guy tells him that there's a Mandalorian on Tatooine, and he barely believes it because he said, I just spent a bunch of time on Tatooine. I didn't see any Mandalorians there. And this guy says, go to Mos Pelgo which is, you know, there are basically three settlements on um, on Tatooine. There's Moss Eisley, Moss, oh man, I lost the second one, and Moss Pelgo is the third one. And, uh, and so he's supposed to go there to find a Mandalorian. Right, and if you remember, the last time we were on Tatooine with Mandalorian was where he was with that rookie bounty hunter trying to cut his chops in the guild and we meet fennec shand so and then she uh as i pointed out kevin doesn't die at the end of that episode i was right i'm you just were, saying <laughs> you were super right she did not die at the end of that episode so anywho so he, he feels pretty comfortable thinking that there are no mandalorians on tatooine and he's like well why not where else am i gonna go yeah so um and also i i think one of the interesting things is right before he uh kills the one-eyed guy well, he actually doesn't kill him. He doesn't kill him. And it's an interesting nuance to Din Djarin's interpretation of right and wrong. And I, I really can't even describe the scene uh, accurately. So, you know, you have to watch this. Yeah, yeah. But he basically, yeah, rather than he doesn't directly kill him, he takes actions that result in his death. And that is that's skirting a fine line for him that he's comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, there, there's, you know, he, he believes in kind of this, like, black and white, right and wrong, that kind of thing. And it, we start seeing that black and white turn to gray as the season moves on. So I think it's funny that we start episode one where we're still, you know, black and white, and then we, we move on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what happens on Tatooine? So on Tatooine, uh, he goes back to the, the, the same ship bay with... Um, Oh, what's her name? Pelimoto. Uh, Pelimoto. Um, and uh, and she's very excited to see Baby Yoda. She agrees to babysit while Din Djarin's off doing his errand. Um, she kind of gives him directions to Mos Pelgo and and warns, lends him a speeder. She lends him a speeder and she warns him that uh, he can't fly there in his own ship because some reason they'll see him coming or something. So he goes there in a speeder. And when he gets there, he starts asking around for uh, someone who looks like him. And the bartender says, oh, you mean the marshal? And then in walks uh, a guy wearing Boba Fett's armor. 
Yeah, and I I think it's really, you know, just kind of, we've talked about this being a space western. It just, the guy walks into the saloon wearing the armor like immediately after that. Oh, he's Marshall. So everything that you know from westerns from, you know, the 50s and 60s or whatever, like that's kind of what this evokes. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. And on top of it, the actor is Timothy Oliphant, who was in Westworld and actually is like does modern westerns. So, um... So he comes in and pretty quickly takes off his helmet to which Mando um, takes immediate offense and, and goes from, hey, you're another Mandalorian too. Where'd you get that armor? I'm going to kill you now. And, uh, and and he basically says, take that armor off right now or I'm going to kill you. And uh, and the marshal's like, oh man, okay, fine. We're going to have a shootout right here because I'm not a Mandalorian. I got this armor from some, from some Jawas. And, um, and then as they're about to have a shootout, um, a, a big rumble happens and we find a crate dragon running right down Main Street. Yeah, so crate dragons are apparently bad news. They're a new monster. I feel like we haven't really seen them before, right? So we have sort of. So there, there are two instances where crate dragons have shown up in the past. One is uh, on the sands of Tatooine when R2-D2 and C-3PO are kind of walking through the desert. There's a, they walk past a skeleton, and that's the skeleton of a very small crate dragon. And then secondly, when Obi-Wan scares away the sand people by making a really loud, weird noise, that is the the scream of the crate dragon. Oh, okay. So we've never really like we've never, truly we've encountered never seen one. one. Yeah, okay. but but we have seen evidence of them. It wasn't a new invention for this. And just as a as an aside, because it comes up later, uh, there was a one of the video games. I cannot remember which one. I want to say it's Knights of the Old Republic, but it may be a different one. Um, one of the 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 video games out of the late '90s, early 2000s. You actually had an option to fight and kill a crate dragon in order to get its pearls. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So we've got a crate dragon that is terrorizing this uh, town of Mos Palgo. We've got a marshal who has armor that doesn't belong to him. We've got a upstanding, if you will, a sense of honor a Mandalorian who wants not only information about other Mandalorians, but wants to restore the Speskar armor to the true Mandalorians. And we have Baby Yoda just being babysat, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, and so in you know in what what becomes kind of a pattern for Dinjarin is he agrees to take on some sort of very difficult side quest in order to get a small forward motion in his personal quest, um, and in this case because he really doesn't want to kill the marshal, he agrees to help kill the crate dragon in exchange for um, him voluntarily giving the armor back. So they go to the home of the crate dragon, which is in a cave that was formerly occupied by a Sarlacc. But the thing is, is that they don't just go to the cave. They go and they negotiate with the sand people first. Yes. And I think what's really interesting about this is that we've, our entire Star Wars viewing time, have thought that the sand people are monsters. I mean, remember episode two when Anakin goes and slaughters all of those sand people? And he's, I mean, obviously it's some overacting and bad overacting at that, but we have been meant to always believe that they are terrible we know that they're dangerous from a new hope but to find out that they're just people trying to make their way in the desert in a galaxy far far away maybe a bit more violent but to know that they can be reasoned with they're not truly monsters they just have a different set of priorities and are perhaps more violent than you and i might be uh that deal is negotiated by din Djarin. 
and, and the marshal is, is really upset about it. He's kind of like, man, we're, we're going to get our you know what's handed to us if we keep talking to these guys. And to strike an accord, the sand people pass this terrible beverage along over to uh, them to to drink. And I guess, what is it? I, I don't even know what that is, but it's it, it, it looks like it's terrible. But it's one of those sort of like it's, you know, kind of a peace pipe sort of like we we share the we share the terrible drink and now we're friends sort of situations. Yeah. Um, the other really neat thing is that the sand people speak in grunts, but also in sort of a hand sign language. And in in the production of this episode, they sort of created that sign language. I think they used it once in season one as well. But they actually um, had a an actor who is deaf and, and knows American sign language uh, help to construct that sign language and then teach it to everyone. And Pedro Pascal, actually, he's not just randomly gesturing. He's actually using an invented language. And one of the sand people is the uh, is the the uh, the deaf actor who invented the language. That's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Din Djarin negotiates this, uh, you know, peace between them uh, in light of a common enemy. And they realize that together the two forces are strong enough, maybe, or at least plenty enough to try to, you know, wage an attack. And, and then things happen. Yeah. First of all, no one tries to reason with the crate Dragon, which feels like, you know, he just doesn't seem like a reasonable type. I mean, a guy that just kind of burrows underground, like Bugs Bunny style, you know, somehow winds up in Albuquerque or whatever. Like, and then it comes out, pops up, eats everything, and then goes back burrowing, destroying on his way down. Like, I just don't feel like that's a dude that you say, hey, man, you got five minutes to talk. Yep, fair enough. And they don't. So long fight scene ensues. Um, and what they basically end up with the result that they should have started with, which they try to like, they go to this very complicated plan of like, let's bury a bunch of bombs right outside its house and then draw it out and get it to come out really far out of its house. And then we'll detonate the bombs. And when that doesn't work, uh, then Din Djarin basically takes just a whole bantha's worth of bombs, flies inside of it and detonates them and then flies out, which Feels which, like feeding it the Bantha bomb seems like would have been like the first thing I would have done, not the last thing I would have done. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it kind of reminded us of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the, the scene. It goes on just a little bit too long, and I kind of feel that that's a thing that happens in several episodes in season two, but it doesn't take away from how great this is. But if you guys remember your uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe with Guardians of the Galaxy 2... Um, What's his name? Drax in the opening scene. Yeah, Drax in the opening scene. He goes in and he's like, the skin is too thick to be pierced from outside. I must go inside. And it's like, no, it's going to be the same thickness. Yes. But yet somehow it's not in Mandalorian <laughs> season two, chapter nine. That's right. You can blow it up from the inside when you couldn't blow it up from the outside. But a well, long story short, the uh, the the crate dragon gets blown up. The sand people claim the pearl. Um, and uh, the marshal gives the armor back to the Mandalorian. And who do we see on the ridge overlooking this whole thing is a scarred looking fella who has a face we kind of recognize. Yeah, it's a face we've maybe seen millions of times. Yeah. Yeah. Mysterious man on the ridge. Um, and uh, and then we're we're off to try to find more Mandalorians and more Jedi. And how do we do that? Right. So we swing by. We pick up Baby Yoda. We say, hey, we, we got to keep looking. And we find out that Pelimato has 
said, oh, great, you killed the crate dragon and you brought back some crate steak. Apparently that's a thing. Um, and she's like, and also I found somebody for you to uh, give a ride to, you know, hitchhiker style, I guess, or taxi cab, whatever. And it's this frog lady and she needs a ride. So frog lady is a biped frog lady holding a jar full of her frog eggs um and and she needs a ride and she's got to go meet her uh mate or or spouse or or frog man whatever we want to call him um and there's only a certain window in which these eggs can be fertilized and and there's only like certain planet where the tadpoles we can call them tadpoles right i think so we think think they would be i I would assume so okay so where the tadpoles can like grow up or whatever and so uh, unfortunately it's not exactly what Dinjarin had in mind yeah she says that her husband knows where to find mandalorians and if he gives her a ride she'll take her to take him to her husband but he has to fly sublight he can't you go into hyperspace because for some reason hyperspace kills the eggs because plot device um, yeah, kind of a really far-fetched plot device, well, but I guess... It, it is, if for only the reason that if you're flying from one star system to another um, on sublight speeds, you're going to be flying for like literally years and years and years and hundred years, um, and yet he somehow manages to do it in minutes, although this is something that came up back when the Falcon's hyperdrive was broken and they were flying from the asteroid belt of Hoth to Bespin. Somehow you can do it sublight and you can still get there relatively quickly, the sometimes the time of space doesn't make sense it's okay okay so this is what is basically the premise of episode 10 uh, or chapter 10 um and it's called the passenger which refers to frog lady and she seems really nice unfortunately she only speaks frog and even though the mandalorian speaks a few languages they don't have any overlap as to what they speak so that's you know challenging at best um and also, remember Baby Yoda, how he's just a little buddy? Yes. Yeah, and one day he's going to be a bigger buddy, we hope. Hope so, yes. But he's got to eat to be big and strong. Yes. So what does he keep doing? He, he keeps sneaking off and, and eating her babies. <laughs> well, they aren't her babies yet. Uh, fair enough. They're, they're her soon-to-be baby yes. babies. Sorry, he eats her eggs. That's true. They're unfertilized eggs. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you didn't make scrambled eggs this morning, but sometimes you do. So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that, though, to quote or to to butcher quote somebody from Lucasfilm said, it's kind of like eating chicken eggs, except chickens aren't sentient. And it's disturbing, which is funny. And I'm like, I guess it is. And it ends up being a cute little bit. But like when you think about it too much, it's like, boy, you're eating the uh, you're eating the unborn of a of a sentient species that can like talk and stuff. But your baby Yoda keeps keeps dipping in there and sucking these eggs down. And it, it is pretty cute. Which also would track as to why she's got a whole jar full of her her eggs. You know, otherwise, like she would just have the one egg. Like, right. Yes, all of her eggs are in one basket, but she has many of them. So it, that's it's true. OK. And yeah. And and yeah. And and it's definitely I think the the sort of the meta point there is is that Baby Yoda is still he is innocent and somewhat undisciplined and Din Djarin is really having a hard time because he catches him doing it a couple times and tells him not to and he just keeps doing it right so they're they're definitely having a little bit of a tough relationship in terms of 
Um, you know, Baby Yoda seems to generally understand what the Mando's saying, but does not always obey him. Yeah, and I'm not saying beat your children, but Baby Yoda might need the threat of a spanking here or time out or something because uh, he is not... He's... Not, He's just not, going back for more eggs. Not well behaved. And, yeah. Although, I mean, imagine like what what can you really threaten him with when when this baby is in like you know death fights on a on a regular basis and knows, for example, um, that when like when guns come out to like close the, his own door to the pram and go hide, right? Like you know, hey, you almost got shot yesterday. I'm gonna spank you. Doesn't feel like much of a threat. Yeah, you're got. 15 minutes of time out. No, it, it doesn't really work. I get that. I yeah, do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, in addition to Baby Yoda's uh, childish antics, uh, we've also got people who kind of want to know where the Mandalorian is. And he's kind of been around the galaxy. He's gotten into some stuff. And that includes some New Republic uh, X-Wings. Yeah. And this is interesting because this is one of the first times that we see, you know, so we saw some New Republic official stuff in season one when Mandalorian, uh, when he participated in the prison break on a prison ship. And we kind of got to see some New Republic government and we saw those X-Wings come and blow up the 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 base where he left that beacon. Those Those same X-Wings, they seem to be kind of like space cops. And they're flying around and they're enforcing they're enforcing New Republic, you know, laws and regulations. And because he's traveling sublight, they catch up to him and ask him um, to turn on his transponder, which he doesn't have. And then they kind of they, they do get his ID number and they find out that he was the guy who um, who broke prisoners out of that prison transport. And um, and they kind of don't take kindly to that uh, and chase him down to the planet and uh, and ultimately cause him to crash land on some ice planet while they're pursuing him. But I do think that this is interesting because it's the first time that we see a government in operation that's not the Empire. Yeah. And it's such a dysfunctional government is what we wind up learning is that they, you know, crash him down, but they don't really care about following up that badly. So he's crashed. He's looking at the damage onto his ship. He's totally incapable of controlling baby Yoda from eating all those eggs. Frog lady still doesn't speak any language. She keeps trying to communicate, but she doesn't do so very well. And they're going to freeze to death. Yeah, yeah. I do think the one thing back on the the new, the new Republic, the one big difference between sort of the New Republic and the Empire is that the New Republic guys gave him a lot of chances to like stop, and um, you know, and they said, "Don't make us shoot you. Don't make us do this. Don't make us do this." Where the Empire would have definitely just blown him out of the sky. Um, but yeah, so now they're stuck in a cave on a frozen planet. The ship's all busted and Mando's basically given up and frog lady is really upset because she's the, like, this is her last spawning of her life and she's the last of her line and she does not want, uh, her, her eggs to die. And he basically says, we're going to sleep off the night, which seems like a weird thing to do when you're in a frozen cave and try to make repairs in the morning. And she said, basically that'll be too late. And she wakes him up by doing kind of an unexpected thing. Yeah, so for whatever reason, she decides to basically have a spa day. Um, and well, but before the spa day, right? She, while Mando is asleep, she wires into some droid that 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 blown up assassin droid that was on his ship. Oh yeah, and she because she doesn't speak basic, she wires into that droid's vocoder and is able to speak in the voice of the droid, which wakes the wakes the hell out of Mando because he starts hearing this assassin droid talking to him and she gives a brother impassioned speech about like 
didn't don't you have any honor didn't you make a deal with me you promised me to get me there by by this time why are you giving up like there's no honor left in the galaxy kind of thing and that spurs him to action it does it does several things first of all it spurs him to action secondly it again appeals to mando's sense of honor and code and you know we continue to see that reiterated he he wants to do the right thing how he got into bounty hunter like land that's a little interesting given what we know about his moral character but then I I think the other thing and you and I were talking about this before the pod is that frog lady up until this point seems kind of backwards uh we we don't know much about her but she she doesn't seem very sophisticated very technical and it turns out she is very technical very sophisticated very sharp it's just she doesn't speak the same language and I think that that is an interesting statement for us to think about you know how we look at you know our our fellow man and and trying to best understand that while we don't all speak the same language like we are all capable and we are all reasoning humans sharing this planet and we need to learn to communicate together yeah yeah i thought that was a really great scene and and i mean she did a fairly complicated thing she like bypassed the protocols on that droid to just use its head to talk to him um anyway that gets mando working on on trying to repair the ship um and then and then meanwhile that's when frog lady decides also to give herself a spa day for some reason well you know she she's spent a lot of time um telling mando what for so i think she felt like she earned it so she goes and she finds this like um heated spa and it's like a natural spring but it's very hot it's a hot water spring and she's just lounging about having a good time and lets her eggs just like float around with her which i feel like she didn't have to go that far but she did so it just makes it a little bit more challenging to clean up because eventually Mando and and Baby Yoda go and, and they find her and they're like, what are you doing? This isn't part of the plan. Um, and Baby Yoda wanders off and God bless him. He's just hungry. He's yeah. just a hungry yeah. little buddy. I think that Din Djarin needs to feed that little critter a little bit more often. Um, but yeah, he finds what appear to be some different kinds of eggs in the cave that they're in. And he cracks one open and eats the delicious goo inside. And it turns out it's a spider. And it turns out there are a lot of spiders. And it turns out, apparently, by cracking one of their eggs, you release the the horde of spiders upon yourself. And now we have a spider problem. And now we do indeed have a spider problem. And this is one of those things where I think that what the intention was to create kind of a horror movie, Phil. Like that you are, are looking over your shoulder. You're being chased. It's kind of like the spider chase scene in Harry Potter, but, you know, slightly less good. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say that, that to, to date, this is my least favorite sequence in The Mandalorian. I kind of get what they were trying to do. I thought it was both unnecessary, executed a little clunky, Um it got some action in there, but it really didn't. I mean, it didn't end up being all that great. And but but long story short, the the spiders in you know of various sizes, from tiny little guys up to a giant, probably like three hundred foot tall spider, um, you know, chase them back into the ship. They seal themselves into the cockpit. They try to take off, even though the ship's pretty busted. Almost make it, and then a giant spider like f- falls on them. 
and crushes them down. And then who shows up uh, at the at the very last minute when it, when all hope seems to be lost? Those New Republic pilots. Yeah, which feels like kind of a Deus Ex Republic, and uh, and just you know, uh, you know the the sort of uh, typical like there are no options left and then somebody comes from outside and saves us. But it does lead to a really, really interesting verbal exchange after that. So I'll, I'll, I'll maybe forgive all of this for this little conversation that happens after. Right. And I, I think this kind of sets up some future Marvel or future Disney content. And it sets up um, kind of our understanding as to why the New Republic is uh, not as effective as we hoped it would be. Yeah. So the the New Republic pilots basically Din Djarin says, hey, cool, you killed all those spiders. Can you come like help me patch up my hull? And they both point blaster rifles at him and they say, hey, we reviewed the tapes and we noticed that we saw that you were on that prison transport. And he says, am I under arrest? And they say, but also we saw the part where you tried to, you risked your own life to try to spare the life of the guard that died. And then you also apprehended your own co-conspirators and locked them up on that prison ship. Um, we could use some more like people in the galaxy like you. And and he basically, in, in his own way, Mando says like, well, all right, how about I forego the bounty on those guys if you forego, or if you, uh, if you help me fix my ship. And they're like, We'll not pay you the bounty on those guys and also drop the warrant and hopefully we'll not see you again. Yeah, so he's still got a busted ship. He's still got a frog lady whose eggs are going to expire soon. And he's got what we believe is still a pretty hungry baby Yoda and still some spiders hanging around. And he's still got to take frog lady to Trask. Yes, um, and I think at the very close of the episode, Baby Yoda sneaks one more egg out of his his little like cloak and slurps it down uh, for a little final point. Um, but they do get into orbit. They uh, they're they're confined to the cockpit because that's the only thing he could pressurize. Um, ship's not doing well, but it's enough to to kind of make it to Trask and attempt a landing. And so we're into Chapter Eleven. Chapter Eleven is called the Heiress. And this is a really great episode. I would say that this is the first episode of the season that just, you know, knocks your socks off. Like, the first episode was good. It was longer. It was, you know, 45, 50 minutes. The whole scene with Frog Lady in the passenger in uh, season in chapter 10 was like, okay, you know, moves the plot along a little bit. You got some good Baby Yoda content. He's still not using the Force. Like, why doesn't Baby Yoda use the Force and just, like, zap all those spiders away or right. something? But no. So we're we're craving something great. And Chapter 11 brings it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they basically crash land in, in this little settlement on this planet, Trask. Um, and um, a Mon Calamari guy. So it's interesting that the population of this is mostly uh, Mon Calamari and Corrin, who are the two species that live on Mon Calamari and fought in a civil war during uh, the Galactic Civil War. Um, but they generally don't get along, but they seem to get along okay on wherever wherever this planet is. Um, and um, so Mon Cal says he'll fix up the Razor Crest for some money. And meanwhile, um, Frog Lady and her husband are reunited and Frog Man, I guess, um, basically he, he points Din Djarin to this little inn tavern 
um, where he says he can find someone who can take him to some Mandalorians. Right. And I will say, because we've been striving for some point in this podcast to talk about relationships, like, I get it, sort of, but Frog Lady and Frog Man are so happy to see each other, and they just, like, look at each other, and, and they hug, and then they have, like, meaningful glances. I feel like it would have been okay for Frog Man to kiss Frog Lady. I thought he did kiss Frog Lady. No, they don't kiss. Really? Yeah. Huh. I thought they hug. They definitely hug, and they exchange a meaningful glance. And, I mean, if necking is purely just rubbing of necks, then they do some of that. But they're frogs. They barely have necks. So, no, there's nothing. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're, maybe their people don't kiss. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like it was one of those things that either there was a discomfort with showing that, or that... They just felt like, to your point, maybe frog people don't kiss. I don't know. But, so Mando takes Baby Yoda into the inn. Um, it, It's kind of a restaurant, hotel, bar, if you will. And he uh, gets a table and he orders some chowder for the baby and uh, doesn't want to eat himself and offers to pay for some information. Yes. And the Mon Calamari that runs the place gives uh, Baby Yoda some chowder, which I guess still has a little live octopus thing in it, and jumps on Baby Yoda's face, which and and Dinjar and stabs it, and then gives it to him and says, "Stop playing with your food," which was a cute dad moment. Um, and this Corrin guy comes over and uh, looking and sounding very much like, um, oh, um, uh, Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean. I was gonna say, didn't you get a Pirates of the? I Caribbean got a Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean. Bill Nye is Davy Jones. Bill Nye was not the actor of that Corn, but I got a very Davy Jones Pirates of the Caribbean vibe off that guy. But he um, he says he knows where where to find some Mandalorians. It's only a couple days sail, and so uh, all of a sudden we're on a boat and on the water, different kind of ship. Yeah, we we've. Uh pretty much done the whole planes trains and automobiles thing if you will yeah um yeah i was kind of surprised i mean like i like the effect i was surprised to see a boat in the water only because you know they fly spaceships on land they do have some land cars that have wheels and stuff but for the mo- for much much of their land transportation they use you know land speeders and other hovercraft and so the fact that you would sail a boat in the water seemed like kind of anachronistic but it worked for the scene, um, there's a there's a some sort of large creature that lives in the center of the boat, um, and they're gonna feed it, and then they sort of kick Baby Yoda in there in his little pram, and when Mando goes to save him, they close the gate over him and try to drown him. Right, because they want the Besker. Yes. Like yeah. So it turns really out. Pumped about this. Yeah, it turns out they don't actually know where to find other Mandalorians. They just wanted they they've been trapping Mandalorians and then killing them for their Beskar. Except not all of them because he's rescued by someone we've really been excited to see. Uh, Bo-Katan Kreez. Yes. So Bo-Katan, if we remember, is the the sister of the Duchess of Mandalore from the Clone Wars. Um, her sister was killed. Uh, in the whole Maul Obi Wan situation, she was a member of uh, Bocatan. Was a member of Death Watch. Bocatan ends up redeeming herself, um, gets the dark saber from Sabine Wren, and presumably at the end of the Clone Wars becomes the ruler of Mandalore with the support of the other clans uh, in their fight against the Empire. And nifty 
fact here is that we get the crossover voice actress who voiced Bo-Katan actually plays Bo-Katan. Yeah, and so. looks shockingly like exactly like you would expect. They get they got the hair right, they got the armor right, they got the hairband right, and she looks and then of course sounds exactly right to be Bo-Katan just a few years later. Yeah, so it, it's pretty cool. Um, and we see a couple other Mandalorian with her, and. Our Mandalorian, Din Djarin, is so thrilled to see them because he needed a rescue. And he's like, oh my gosh, here are my people. This is so exciting. And then what happens? Bo-Katan, as she always does, immediately takes off her helmet when she's done fighting, which is a thing we've seen her do for years and years and years. And it was something that I always wondered what would happen when Mandalorian encounters somebody who takes their helmet off. And he immediately is like, you're not a Mandalorian. Who are you? And she's like, listen, son, <laughs> I am the I am Bo-Katan Kreese of House Kreese. I was in charge of Mandalore. Um, no, and and then and then she basically looks at the other two that's with her, and she's like, "Oh God, he's one of them." Yeah, and, and they all kind of roll their eyes. They're like, "Oh, so you're a child of the Watch? So you're part of that crazy cult?" And you know, we're not going to call out any specific cults by name here, but you know, use your imagination, and it's kind of like that kind of whole scenario. And and so he realizes that maybe he's not. Mandalorian the way like Mandalorians are Mandalorian. Yeah, I this is a very, it's it's a it's a revelation for him and it's another really good piece of acting because he does not take his helmet off, but you can kind of see this like moment of recognition of like wait a minute, maybe I'm the weird one. <laughs> um and uh and so, you know, he so they all uh decide to go back to back to land and he sort of thanks them for their help. And tells them that, you know, he's quested to bring Baby Yoda to a Jedi. And they're like, oh, maybe we can do something about that. And they all fly back to the inn to have a meeting. Yeah, so they have this meeting. And really, it's kind of, once again, where uh, Din Djarin has to agree to a, an adventure that seems like a lot more work for the amount of information he's going to get. But it tracks. It, it's kind of what we know him for. Yeah. And this is kind of what he does. And, and he has no other choice at this point. But basically, Bo-Katan says that there is a an Imperial cruiser full of um, weapons that they're, that the Empire is trafficking around. And that she's been attacking these, these ships to try to get weapons. And she's on a mission to retake Mandalore. And he's like, what? You can't do that. And she's like, you like hell I can't. And so she says, I will, if you help me get these weapons and take over this ship, then I'll tell you where to find a Jedi. And it's another one of those like very, um, you know, kind of Vader style deals where the deal keeps getting bigger as they, as they go. It starts with help me get the weapons and then it's help me take the ship and then it's help me take the ship intact. And then it's, you know, stay on and help me take Mandalore. Um, but they have a very cool whole fight sequence through the ship and taking over the taking over the ship. And we get to see some really good live action, full on Mandalorian team battle. Yeah, and it's really cool. We haven't seen stuff like this since the Clone Wars. So, and that was all animated. So I feel like this is a lot cooler. No disrespect to animation, but I I feel like the live action was really cool. And we finally get ourselves to the point where the ship's going to be overrun. Um, whoever the Imperials are in command of the ship, uh, the officer reaches out to Moff Gideon, asks for assistance, and the Moff is like, dude, if they're already where you say they are on the ship, your ship's lost. Like, you know what to do. 
and there are two fairly rookie looking pilots flying the ship and they look like they like just joined the army you know they're, they're not really you know they haven't been veterans if you will so um the officer shoots them and he's like I'm gonna take the ship down they're, they're not taking the ship they're not taking me and we're, we're just gonna make a big old mess yep and uh and of course you know our heroes prevent that from happening um you know they they break into the cockpit they throw him out of his seat pull it out of the dive and Bo-Katan starts interrogating the officer and she says does he have it and he says if you have to ask you already know and she said I want to know where the Darksaber is and I want to know where Moff Gideon is she's like I promise I won't kill you if you tell me and he says you won't but he will and then he crunches down on like an electric cyanide capsule yeah yeah very Hydra moment right there yeah um so they managed to save the ship. Uh, you know, they, they have kind of a really good moment at the end where Bo-Katan tells Din Djarin, you know, like, could really use your help in reclaiming Mandalore. And he's like, I've already got a quest. I, I can't really do this. And uh, I, I think it's very interesting. She says, this is the way. Yeah. So she she tells him where he can find a... Jedi. Jedi, yes. And she tells him to go to the forest planet Corvus and look for um, a Jedi named Ahsoka Tano and tell her that Bo-Katan sent you. Yeah. And, and so at that point, everything that we've been waiting for, we think is going to happen, but it totally doesn't. It doesn't. So, yeah. So it's like, yay, we're going to find that we've, we've seen Bo-Katan. We've seen her fight. We're, we're taking back Mandalore, apparently, and now we're going to see Ahsoka, and we get to Chapter 12, and we're not going to do that right now. And Chapter 12 is called The Siege, and as soon as we saw the name, I looked over to you and I said, do you think we're going to see a flashback of The Siege of Mandalore? And you're like, maybe. No. no. We're not going to get that either. We don't get that either. So, anywho, um, we're not going to get to see Ahsoka Tano yet. No. Um, which means this podcast, we're not going to talk about Ahsoka Tano, which is... Uh, means that we've got a lot to talk about next week. Um, but yeah, the siege is, it, it was almost, I mean, it's a very good episode and I, and it advances some of the plot elements and it brings back some friends and it sets up some other things, but really it's kind of a, a oh, it's a, it's, it's a look. And, and I'd say this with no derision at all, but it's a bit of a filler episode. Like it's there to, it's there to sideline us away from, um, from meeting Ahsoka, uh, and it's to, you know, to, to do some other things, but it's basically, uh, Mando goes back to Navarro on his way to Corvus because his ship, the, the Mon Cal did not, not do good. a good job, which is, which is why this bothers me, but I do a little rant here. The Mon Calamari are legendary, legendary starship builders. They built the Calamari cruisers, home one, right? The Radis. Like those big bubbly, like the the basically the big command ships of the rebellion. They're good at this. The, they're Mon Calamari cruisers. Like they are a spacefaring people. They are super good at this. They're good at building ships and fixing ships, and ships of the generation that the Razor Crest is. And so the idea that this Mon Calamari like rigs it up with with ropes and stuff for some reason and makes a mess out of it, and that that Dinjarin's kind of like gives us like oh Mon Calas these guys right feels weird to me like because they're actually super duper good at this and it was a little bit it was a little bit misplaced like kind of like making the seafaring guy represent his whole species when that was a, an unfair characterization of the whole Mount Calamari people okay yeah anyway but this particular Mount Calamari 
junked up his ship and it barely flies. So he needs to go somewhere to have it fixed for real. So he stops by Navarro, um, where he, you know, where he not long ago, and this is the other funny thing, right? We're only like, we're three episodes down from, uh, the end of, of chapter eight. Uh, he hasn't been gone that long. Like he's not, he's not been gone for months from Navarro, right? Yeah. Maybe a month, month and a half. Maybe a month, right? Uh, Doing his various things. But the frog lady uh, sequence actually took a long time because he was flying sublight, but still, yeah. Yeah. But it's not been like, it's been like a little while, but, uh, down there, um, grief carga and, um, uh, Caradun have been cleaning up the town. And they they rooted out all of the remaining Imperials. They have taken out a lot of the crime elements that they don't control. And uh, things are peaceful and prosperous on Navarro for the people and the bounty hunters. And so when they land, immediately Grieve Karga gives, um, you know, gives Dinjar and like, he's like, I'll fix you. I'll, I'll give your trip ship the whole treatment. It's on the house. Like, we got this. Um, oh, by the way, I've got a side mission for you. Always a side mission. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that that's uh, kind of where we, we go next. But we need a babysitter because this time there is no um, there is no droid. There there is no, you know, uh, Pelimato. There There's nobody. So they drop him off at the school. Yeah. Apparently they've put together a school well, on Navarro. I don't know if you caught this, but the school is in, they, they took the bar that they got, like where they had the shootout at the end of the, yeah. the last time they were there. They converted that bar to a school. Which is crazy because last time I remember, Baby Yoda basically uh, burned the place to the ground. But. Yeah, well, and I guess that was. But then the, they claimed the insurance and turned it into a school. I don't know. But in there, there's a there's a three there's a protocol droid of some sort um, who's teaching lessons, and they're they're just you know for super Star Wars nerds, there are some really good little nuggets in there where they talk about things that are like never like like he talks about the main hyperspace routes, and he talks about the Hydean Way and the Kessel Run and this and that. And and like there are some of these things where like you don't there there are things that are like written in books and whatever and have never really been spoken out loud in uh, in them and talking about the the inner rim and the mid rim and the outer rim and so there's just a, like a little background chatter that if you if you listen to it there's just a lot of good stuff in there but mostly they put baby Yoda in school and Cardoon's like I guarantee his safety I'm not sure how she guarantees his safety but she does um and uh and he's a little scamp <laughs> yeah it's actually the first time we see him use the force um and he doesn't use it for the right reasons he uses it for very selfish reasons but once again poor baby yoda is just hungry he is he's hungry again like i'm not saying that we should call child protective services on din Djarin, but he's gotta feed baby yoda yeah so poor little by um He's sitting next to a classmate and he kind of like cutes her up. He's like, look at my big eyes and my big floppy ears. Can I have some of your cookies? And she's kind of a jerk and says no, she won't share her cookies. And then B.Y. like totally just force grabs the cookies and is and and basically dares this girl to do anything about it and and it would appear because he still has the cookies later that she does not do anything about it no however if you would like those same cookies you can purchase them from william sonoma they do not sponsor our podcast so i don't know if the cookies taste any good but who knows yeah and <laughs> so. uh, and and the 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 director said that they were inspired by the fact that there's their their blue macaroons is basically what they are and he said they're inspired by the idea of blue milk um, and had those commissioned. And then, yeah, apparently William Sonoma picked it up and started selling them. 
Adorable. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so Baby Yoda's fine. Um, the mission, the the last thing that they need to do to clean up Navarro is um, there's an, there's this little Imperial base and it's only got like one squad and it's by the lava flats and they're like, if we could just blow up this base, then we would be totally in the clear. And Din Djarin's like, sure, what the hell? Let's go blow up a base. Um, and uh, and they bring along as as like their getaway driver, uh, Mithril who you remember from the very, very first scene of the entire show is the first bounty that we see uh, Din Djarin catch and bring back to Navarro. Yeah, and here's the problem, though, is that when you have someone who's an indentured servant, which is what he is, when you have someone doing that, are they loyal to you? No, they just don't want to die. Yeah. So that's the problem, is you need to have people who are like all in on the cause, and this guy's not all in. No, I mean, I don't think, yeah, I think the the wild thing, though, is that this is, it's once again, and we've brought this topic up a bunch of times before, but like slavery and indentured servitude, nobody bats an eye. Like they basically get there and Mando's like, oh, hey, this guy. And uh, Grief Cargo's like, yeah, I had him, I had you pick him up because he was my accountant and he did some creative accounting and now he owes me 300 years of, of, of servitude. And through the episode, Grief Karga like gets him to do stuff by taking years off his sentence. But it's basically nobody like nobody addresses the fact up until the up into and including the fact like New Republic guys show up later and no one's like, oh, you're you're putting people into you're putting people into unpaid slavery for years. No one seems to be concerned about this. It's just the way of the galaxy. It's wild. Yeah, the Republic, the New Republic, the Empire. Everyone totally comfortable with slavery. Totally comfortable with treating people and other beings as less than. And I feel like that is a significant problem that never truly comes to roost. And we need to, hopefully in new Star Wars content, which we've already talked about that's on the way, hopefully some of that will address that. I I, I hope so. It's- I mean, I'm not that I'm not that hopeful though because we know that by like by the sequence sequence on Canto Bite, uh, there are still kids being held slaves. Oh man, I right? forgot about that. So I mean, we're gonna get 25 years from now, and it's still gonna be a, a a pretty pretty big problem, and not in like a not in like the outer rim. Like Canto is somewhere in like civilized space, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I forgot about that. Yeah. Sorry, dude. Not oh. gonna fix. Not gonna fix. All anyway. right. Onward. <laughs> so, so they basically force this guy, uh, who is who is their servant, to come with them on this blow up mission, and then get him to help them. And they basically the the idea is they're gonna like disable the the cooling system so that the lava flow blah 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 blows it up. So they do that, and then on their way out, they notice cloning tanks. And there's like a lot more troopers there. And they're like, this isn't a base. This is some kind of lab. And they stumble upon a recording. And the recording says a couple of very interesting things. Um, it's Dr. Pershing, who, um, if, if you remember, is the is the doctor um, scientist guy from... Chapter 3. Chapter 3, yeah, that the, the client works for the client. And it's him recording a message to Moff Gideon saying hey, we've been doing the experiment and we tried the transfusion and it almost worked, but then the patient rejected it and died and we need more of the donor's blood. It has the highest M count. I hear that as midichlorian count that we've ever seen. Unfortunately, we're out of blood. We need to find the asset again. That's probably baby Yoda and get more blood. 
And the the team's like, wait a minute, that can't be right. Moff Gideon's dead. We killed him a month ago. And they say, no, this message is from three days ago. And they're like, oh, crappers. So now they know that like they're doing something with Baby Yoda's blood. They want more of it. And Moff Gideon's not dead. Bad day for the good guys. Right. And what's interesting is that we have already had, you know, Bo-Katan asking about Moff Gideon and Din Djarin kind of shrugged that off. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he was uncrashing the ship at that moment, so maybe he didn't hear her. But, but yeah. he seems like the kind of guy that's really good at multitasking. Yeah, and that would have been weird. Yeah, he probably could have said, yo, I think I killed that guy. Yeah, but no, that doesn't come up. No, that's true. So here we are, and then now he's like, oh man, oh, Moff man. Gideon's still alive. That's a problem. Yeah, and uh, and he's coming for me. That's also a problem. We need to get out of here. Oh, also, this base is about to blow up. That's a problem. Oh, there are clones in these jars. I wonder what they're... Uh, we're not going to worry about that because we got to get out of here. And so they get out of here, chase, 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 go back home. And um, and then... His ship's repaired. His ship's repaired. Um, and he thanks everybody and says, I'm going to go to find this Jedi now. And cool. Yeah, and Cara Dune's you know promoted to a full-blown marshal yeah like, those those same pretty great yeah those yeah. same x-wing pilots show up and uh and are start asking about how did that base blow up like what happened and she's like i don't know it was just out there and then it blew up and they're like come on now and she's like no oh, whatever and then they start talking about alderaan and they talk about the new republic and she says i'm not a joiner and then they give her a new republic marshal badge and be like say hey, you should join, you know, you should be part of this. And so they leave it hanging whether or not she accepts that, but they offer her. And it's really interesting because one of the other guys said, he's like, oh, who'd you lose on Alderaan? And this is the first time where we really see like an emotional Cara Dune. And she said, everyone. Yeah, which feels like a fairly insensitive question. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, I wonder if like maybe he thought that she was born there and then moved somewhere else yeah, and she had like yeah. a great aunt and I, uncle I mean, who lived there or to something. To be fair, but... she wasn't on Alderaan, so there were there were definitely there's yeah. an there's an Alderanian diaspora, so like I guess, you know, maybe. Um, but, but that brings us through halfway to the season. Yeah, and there's yeah. one last little subtle point that most people missed. In fact, I missed it on the first watching. But they they pan back to Moff Gideon's cruiser, and one of his officers says, "I've made contact with our our asset on Navarro. They've placed the homing beacon on the on the Razor Crest." That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. All of those efforts that Dinjarin has made to stay under the radar of the Imperial to fulfill his quest doesn't help when you have a homing beacon on your ship no also just as this is another this is another little mini star wars rant here but like look it why don't people scan for the frequencies being emitted by homing beacons all the time but also definitely like when they leave their ship with someone else because this seems to be a a recurring problem right happened to han solo happened a lot of times in books it happens to to him. In fact, I think he threw a homing. Uh, no, um, Django. Uh, it happened to Django Fett, right? Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi put a homing beacon on Django Fett's ship, and I'm thinking, why? Like those homing beacons have to have some like standard frequencies that they broadcast on. Why don't you scan for those frequencies and find out whether somebody's put a homing beacon on your ship? That only makes too much sense, but it's a plot device that will take us into next week when we talk about chapters. Uh, what is it? 13 through 16? 16? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
the back half of the the back half of the season, which is an absolute delight. It really is. It really is. And like like I talked about before, there's really not a lot of relationship in kind of romantical interest as far as uh, you know the different couples. But we do have Frog Lady and Frog Man, um, it, and that's really about it. Yeah, and they do have. There is a little cute moment where we we go back to them when where you know they were babysitting By, and when Din Djarin comes to pick him up, they're all playing with a little tadpole in a bowl, and so apparently they spawn very quickly, right? But um, they, you know, they. But only one tadpole. What happened to the rest? Yeah, good question. I mean, maybe they do them one at a time. I don't know. I don't know. Because I feel like I still saw the egg container in there or something, right? But but Baby Yoda is sort of playing with his head bowl, and he seems to have some recognition that, like, ooh, I was probably eating those. And Din Djarin walks in, and he was like, no, don't eat. Like, he had this look of, like, don't eat that, right? And then Baby Yoda had this look of, like, I want to bring it with me. And Din Djarin, as he's walking out with Baby Yoda, he goes, no, I have too many pets already. Yes, yeah, that that was pretty great. And I I think that kind of so far most of the relationships we've seen have been more of a parental relationship. And I really do like seeing the Mandalorian turn into a father. You yeah, know, he yeah. he's uh it's unexplored territory for sure, but I I think that it is one of those things that we didn't know we wanted to see happen, but it's really great. Yeah. And I mean, if you think through a lot of Star Wars, we really don't see a lot of good, you know, good parenting, really. I oh, mean, no. Right. Terrible I mean, we parenting. See, we see a lot of master apprentice relationships and we see kind of like war brothers and sisters. And Anakin, Luke and Leia. We see Han and Leia and Ben Solo. Like yeah, bad yeah. parenting no, through no and good, through. Yeah, I, I yeah. would say that probably... Um, you know, Owen and Baru, Lars are decent parents, although Owen's kind of gruff, um, you know. They're moisture farmers on Tatooine. It's a tough life. Fair enough. But yeah, but, uh, but yeah we don't see a lot of good kind of long-term, um, really interpersonal relationships developed because most of the relationships we see are either Jedi or Sith. Sith are, are by definition, sort of, you know, bad relationships. And Jedi are trying to not be close to each other. And so this is... Uh, this is nice to finally see somebody who is like growing up, growing into a real parent. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about this more next week. Yep. I love you. I know. <laughs>